Good morning. <laughs> uh, when Desiree and I first moved to Arizona, it was about 10 years ago, it was October of 2013. We moved to Tempe. We were a couple blocks from the ASU campus. We were in a little townhouse there. Uh, it was two-storied. And one day when we came home, maybe 10 months in, uh, there was, we opened our door and there was a lake on the first floor. Um, and what had happened was uh, there was some plumbing issue next door uh, at our neighbor's house. And um, the water from his upstairs bathroom along our shared wall had come down and had been forced out through our bathroom downstairs. And so it filled up the whole first floor. Um, and we came in and called our landlord and he came, you know, and he turned off the water and he cleaned everything up. Um, but a couple of days later, much to our surprise, when we went into that bathroom, we had a few friends that we weren't expecting. Uh, there were three mushrooms that had popped right out of the wall, pop, 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 right? Um, and uh, I called the landlord back because that's not normal. You shouldn't have mushrooms growing out of your bathroom wall. Uh, he came back and pulled out a pair of pliers from his tool bag, and he plucked each one of those mushrooms out of the wall, and then he took some putty, and he puttied over those holes in the bathroom wall. Um, now, I don't know what you're thinking, but I know what I was thinking in that moment. This is wrong. This is not how you're supposed to solve this problem, right? Um, there's all kinds of nasty rot and junk inside the wall that's causing mushrooms to come out, right? Like mushrooms don't naturally grow out of bathroom walls. There's probably mold and rotten wood and all kinds of problems inside the walls that need to be taken care of. What the landlord needed to do, what we wanted him to do, was we wanted him to call a professional in to open up the walls, to do a process that's called remediation, right? It's where you dry out all the the mold and all the spores and all the nasty junk in there and kill it all so that it can't grow back. Now, we did not stick around to find out, but my guess is the mushrooms probably would have grown back because he didn't deal with the root problem, right? It is a bit of an understatement, a bit of an understatement for me to say that our world is desperately broken, right? Maybe on the way here, you fought with your spouse trying to get your kids in the car. Something as simple as that shows the brokenness of our world, but there's a lot worse things that happen. I mean, you don't have to go very far. Open the news app in your phone and scroll for a minute. We can see that kids die as collateral damage in wars. Our world is desperately, desperately broken. And we come up with solutions as human beings, right? We've got tons and tons of solutions. We've got governments and we've got politics and we've got military strength. We've got all kinds of humanitarian aid, things that we can do to try and fix the problems. But every time we fix them, what happens? They grow back. They come back. And the problem is we tend to trade one system of corruption for another. Like mushrooms that keep growing back, we never seem to be free from the injustice and the evil that plagues our world. What we need, just like what we needed in our first year here, was we need a good landlord. We need a good landlord who is willing 
and powerful to deal with the source root issue rather than just the surface symptoms, right? We need someone who's willing to open up the walls to deal with the root problem. We need a God who will deal with the source. And there is good news. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ himself will return to our world and he will remediate our world from the spores of evil once and for all. Let's pray and then we'll jump into the text here this morning. Father God, we, um, we sub- I submit this text to you. This is a very challenging text for us to walk through. Even the scripture that Jill read here this morning maybe has incited some fear in some of us, some tension as we start to open up the scriptures. I pray that you would meet us here. Jesus, come to us clothed in your scriptures. We want to hear your voice. We want to be obedient to what you ask us to do. We have open hands willing. We have open hearts willing to repent and to be moved by how you would move us here this morning. So we pray that you would speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, but I do want to make you aware, uh, if you didn't know this, uh, that I am not going to be one of your pastors for much longer. My family and I are actually transitioning to Sacramento. We'll be starting a new church, planting a church in Sacramento and and leaving in a couple weeks here, uh, just in time for me to preach through uh, some of the most challenging topics that we can find in the Bible. Um, We are in the book of Revelation, as you heard. Um, and Revelation uh, is a book that deals with the last things, eschatology, and specifically this passage has a lot that contributes to some of the confusion around eschatology in, uh, in the Christian sphere. Uh, for the last 10 weeks, we've been working through this book. We are now at week 10 of 11. So next week, we're actually going to hit the finish line. We'll finish with the restoration of all things. But just like Dave said, Pastor Dave said two weeks ago, before God makes all things new, God has to make all things right. And so another way you could think of it, if you're thinking about our junky little apartment in Tempe, Arizona, is before God remodels, God must remediate. Before God remodels, he must remediate. Uh, We are in chapter 19 of Revelation. If you don't have a copy of God's word, go ahead and hold up your hand and one of our ushers will bring a copy to you. Um, We are going to be working from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, And if you need to track with us where that is, that's on page 1040, 1040 in these black Bibles here. So we'll see uh, when we open up here that Jesus is going to deal with the source of evil. And there are three sources of evil in this passage that Jesus is going to deal with at the source, right? Uh, The first one is the beast, the beast. So look with me, if you would, at chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the image that we get here is this is the last day. This is the day that Jesus has come to return to his world and he's going to make an end to evil. And you see that he is coming in as a faithful judge and a faithful warrior who's going to make 
war on evil. John returns to some of the imagery that we get from earlier in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 12 and 13. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, crowns, crowning him, the Lord. He has a name written on it on him that no one knows but himself. No one has power over Jesus. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Maybe it's his own shed for the, the saints. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. So we cannot be confused who this writer is. He is identified as the word of God, the one who is known in scripture as Jesus of Nazareth, right? This is not an image that we get of a weak, frail Jesus who is unable to help this poor, broken world. This is an image of an all-powerful God who is ready for battle with evil. And who is he going to battle against? Look at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So last week, um, Pastor Marcus led us through and, and taught from chapter 17 and 18 and part of 19. And we heard about this woman called Babylon. And Babylon is an image that the book of Revelation uses to talk about the economic empire of Rome, the exploitation economically of Rome, of the rest of the world, and the exploitation of every empire since Rome economically. And so it's this image of the power of the economy that all future empires would hold. And in chapter 17 and 18, God decisively wins the victory over Babylon. But God is not done because just taking down the economic engine of the empire does not take down the empire. The battle's not quite over. He must now deal with something called the beast. The beast is a symbol in Revelation, not of economic rule, but political and military might. And consequently, the political and military power that every empire since Rome would wield. Who is going to win a battle between the slain lamb in chapter 4 and the strongest military and political forces our world has ever seen? Who's going to win this battle? Look at verse 20. The beast was captured. This is one verse later. And thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There is no record of battle here. I don't think that, the, uh, that John skipped over it. I think it's intentional. It is not even really a competition when it comes to the strongest military forces versus Jesus himself. It's over in an instant. It's done. There's no possibility of rebuilding that political military empire either. It's thrown into what's called the lake of fire. Conquest is dead. Political corruption is dead. It's over. It's knocked down and it can never get back up. There is no hope that the beast will return. In the end, there's room for one king and for one kingdom. Hear me with what I'm about to say. I mentioned this is my last sermon, right? <laughs> Easy stuff. Uh, I am not anti-military. 
I am not anti-politics. There is a place in God's good world for defense. There's a place in God's good world for politics. I am anti-beast. And you should be too. Historically, some of the greatest evils and atrocities in our world have been committed by those who wield the kind of power that is promised by the beast. We see oppression. We see civil war. We see conquest. We see child soldiers. We see genocide. We don't even have to go far back in history to see this. Just open that app and you'll see that violence and war seem like permanent fixtures in our world, right? Do not be lured. Hear me on this. Do not be lured into believing the lie from the beast that the answer to this is to put your faith into into better political systems. Do you hear me on that? Do not be lured into the lie that the answer to this is a stronger military. It's a trap to think that the solution to our problems is more political and more military power and putting our faith in those. You can't trade beast for beast. It's plucking the mushrooms out of the wall without dealing with the root problem. In a world that is desperately scarred by violence and oppression and injustice in every corner at the hands of military and political forces throughout our world, the solution is not bigger guns. It's a bigger God. And that God, Jesus Christ, is rising over the hill with his horse and with his armies. He's coming back to make a final end to every evil, every earthly empire. The beast is one of the sources of evil that Jesus has to deal with in his great remediation plan, but he's not the only source of evil that we see here in the text. We also see that Jesus must deal with the devil. Take a look with me at chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Now we're getting spicy. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding his hand, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20 Uh, are the source of some of the most extensive Christian debates about the end times. Uh, And back, if you remember, the very first sermon that we covered in this series, Pastor Dave talked through some of the different views of what's called the millennium. And we're going to kind of go back over those. But the main question surrounding these is, you see, there's a thousand year period that's described here, a millennium that's described here, where, where Satan is bound up and he's unable to act in the world. And also uh, in a little bit, you'll see that uh, the saints who have been killed for their faith, for the testimony of Jesus, have been risen from the dead and they rule with Jesus during this thousand years. So here's the two questions that people ask and lead to all kinds of different views. One, is this millennium literal or symbolic? 
Okay, is it literal or symbolic? And two, if either way, what's the order in the end times that this millennium appears? Okay, so is it literal or symbolic? And what's the chronology of this millennium? And so that leads to three major views. We have uh, post-millennialism, which you can see in the chronology the millennium happens after the church age, but before Jesus Christ returns for the final judgment and the restoration of all things. Okay, so that's called post-millennialism because the millennium happens after the church age, okay? Pre-millennialism, um, or after, it, yes, after the church age. Pre-millennialism means that the millennium comes between Christ's return and his final judgment and restoration of all things. And many people who hold a premillennial view would say that that's a literal millennium, a literal thousand years. Amillennialism uh, tends to prefer a symbolic view that the church age actually is the millennium and that it's a symbolic period of time and that at the end, Christ will come for final judgment and for the restoration of all things. Now, um, if you don't like the way that I described your preferred view, you can, uh, this is my last sermon, uh, you can email me. Just go ahead and email me at mjpadua at redemptionaz.com. Uh, you can tell me all about it. Um, here's three things that are true in all of these views, okay? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is, in fact, coming back. Jesus will judge the living and the dead. That will happen. And Jesus will restore all things. That happens in all of these views. And there are men and women who hold these views who are way smarter than me, way more educated than me, that disagree about these things. Godly people who disagree about these things. We hold this as an open-handed view here at Redemption, okay? This is not the main point I would submit to you. In fact, we wanna, I want to focus here rather than on the manner of the millennium, how it's going to happen, on the meaning of the millennium, okay? Let's focus on the meaning of the millennium. And there are a couple things that we can pull out. First, Christ will vindicate those who suffer for his sake. Look at verse four of chapter 20. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those uh, Christians who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus around the world for all time, those who have suffered and died for the sake of the gospel, are not nameless faces lost to history. They're royalty, reigning with Jesus. And it says a little bit later in this text that they serve as a priestly people bringing about the healing of the nations. Now, no matter what you think about the order or the symbolic or not meaning of the millennium, we share a job with these martyrs listed here that reign with Christ. We are set aside, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are set aside by God to be a priestly people who brings about healing rather than violence. Second, it's important for us to note that the devil can do nothing apart from God. Look at verse seven of chapter 20. It says this, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Satan can't get out on his own, right? Satan is real. 
but he is a created being. He is not equal in authority and power to our God. He's created. In fact, back in verse one of this chapter, God delegates the task of holding the keys to this bottomless pit to an angel. The task is beneath God. Satan is not all that important. What happens next after the millennium is that the devil, one of the origin points of evil in our world, gathers up the strongest armies that he can find with the best weapons the world has ever dreamed of. He's got aircraft carriers and he's got navies and he's got nukes and he's got pilots. More firepower than has ever been assembled in the history of the world. And he has God's people surrounded. Is this the end? Not for God's people. We see that in an instant, God rains down fire and consumes the devil. Again, a battle's not even recorded here. This is not a real contest. God is in control. Just like he was in control when he ended the economic powers of Babylon in an instant. Just like he was in control when he threw the beast into the lake of fire in an instant. In a great anti-climax, the battle is over before it begins. Look at verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So has the problem then been taken care of? Is the remediation done, right? The beast is taken care of, Babylon's taken care of, the devil's taken care of. Can we go into the restoration now? Well, with Satan bound and headed for complete destruction, we have to wonder as we read through that section, why is it that there are still people who gather behind him to battle God in this image, right? If Satan's not the source, what's going on? How, with this great evil bound up, are human beings still so corrupt that they are willing to literally join the side of Satan in a battle against God once he's unbound? It's because there's one more source of evil in our world that needs to be dealt with. One that we would rather skip here this morning. (laughs) Jesus must deal with the human heart. Look with me at chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So God, God deals with Babylon in a battle. Or not really a battle, right? Because it's over before it starts. He deals with the beast by making war. He deals with the devil in a battle. How does he deal with human beings? He does not summon human beings to the battleground. He summons human beings to a courtroom. And it says that... Uh, It does not matter how or when or where human beings have died. They are raised up for this day. Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So imagine the scene here. You die and you're standing in God's throne room. 
and some angels come in from a side room that you don't even know where they're coming from. There's no rooms in here. Uh, They wheel in books, books upon books upon books, a library full of books. And you squint and you get a hint of what is written on the binding, and it's your name on every book. See, these books are a catalog, a catalog of not only everything you've ever done, but everything that you failed to do, everything you've ever said, and everything you've left unsaid, every thought, every attitude, every intention, every inaction. Every detail is recorded in these books, and they are open before the righteous judge. They are exposed to the light. And the text says that after this happens, after human beings are raised from the dead, the grave is emptied. You get this great picture of death itself doesn't have any souls in it anymore. It doesn't have any human beings in it anymore. And so God picks up death and the grave and he tosses those into the lake of fire. They're done too. They're not coming back. But what's going to happen to the human beings who are standing in the courtroom? Look at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is my last sermon. I mentioned that, right? It's time for another detour here. Uh, We have to talk about the elephant in the room. We have to talk about hell. We have to talk about hell this morning. Um, When we read about a lake of fire, which now is, this is not the first time the lake of fire has made an appearance, right? Remember, this is how he dealt with Babylon. This is how he dealt with the beast. This is how he dealt with the devil. This is how he, he deals with death itself. Lake of fire is holy war imagery. It's meant to say, in effect, God will bring an end to it. He will destroy it with no possibility of return. It's not getting back up. It's not coming back. The beast or Babylon will burn forever. Why? Because uh, there's no comeback story on the horizon for the economic powers. The beast will never, ever have its military strength returned to it. It's done. The devil is knocked down and he will never get back up. Death is dismantled and it will never be reconstructed. That's what the lake of fire imagery is trying to say here. It's holy war imagery. It's done and it's never coming back. So we should not think of hell necessarily as a literal open barbecue where God is like roasting sinners or something, okay? But we should read it to mean that God will deal with the corruption of the human heart. He will, he will deal with sin once and for all, and there is no possibility of sin making another appearance in God's good world. It's done. It is done, done, right? However, that does not mean that hell is a fictional place. That does not mean that hell is a desirable place. It's not you smoking weed with your buddies in your mom's basement, okay? That's not what hell is. The lake of fire is an image for a real place called hell. And images are meant to describe what something is like. 
And in this case, we can gather that the reality is probably worse than the image. Another image that we could use for hell is that of a quarantine zone, keeping with our remediation imagery here. A quarantine zone where those who reject God are free to pursue endless selfishness forever. Rather than destroy all those who have rejected him, God quarantines off those who would not want to share in the new creation. Or as Romans 1 says it, in God's wrath, he gives us over to our sinful passions and desires, right? Hell, you could think of, as a place where people can pursue their own desires endlessly apart from our creator and apart from his grace and his favor. Rather than force people to come and worship him, God lets those who have rejected him go their own way and pursue what they truly love themselves forever and ever. As the character in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce says, in the end, we all either say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. And that is punishment enough. Regardless of which image we prefer to use here, this is still a very difficult reality for us to grapple with. Why? It's because I just don't really think I'm that sinful. I really don't think I'm that sinful. It's easy for me, and maybe it's easy for you, to cheer on the end of evil when it feels like it's some far-off structural evil oppressing people in an unjust war. Yeah, down with the beast. It's easy for me to cheer the end of evil when it comes to the devil, demonic powers that are keeping people in bondage to sin, to suffering. Down with the devil. But when I honestly evaluate my life, when I think about those books opened before the throne and every thought, word, and deed exposed, I start to get real uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, I know that I contribute to the reign of sin and injustice and evil in this world. This world can never be truly free from evil and injustice until Jesus wholly remediates the problem of sin and its source. And the hard truth is I am the problem. We are the problem. But friends, there is another book. There is another book that is listed in this passage. And praise God for that book. Look at verse 12 of chapter 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. In the judgment, there are the books of our works, which expose, they're like the wall that's been opened up for remediation, right? So you can, God can see all of the mold, all of the rot, but there is another book that is present. It's called the book of life. This book does not have your name written on the binding of it, listing all your works. This book could have your name written in it. 
And the names that are listed in this book will share in the great remodel. They will share in the great restoration. They will share in Jesus's new kingdom that is coming. How do you get your name in that book? How do we get our names in that book? It's as simple as it sounds. It is the simple truth of the gospel. Don't put your faith in the books of your works. Put your faith in the book of life. Don't put your faith in what you have done. Put your faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. This is simple truth. But we forget it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that's us. He wants you to come to him. But he won't force you. You have a decision ahead of you. The day of judgment is a real day that is, in fact, coming. And if you're sitting here and and you don't know if your name is written in that book of life or not, what are you waiting for? I would implore you as an ambassador for Christ, be reconciled to God. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent from sin and put your faith in Jesus. Today could be the day. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, friends, praise God for this book of life. It's nothing you did to earn it. You're not better than anybody else. You also will be judged, right? The books will be opened. But I hope that there is a small sense of encouragement here that you can also tell people, you can also tell your neighbors about the good news of the book of life. You too are an ambassador for Christ. You too can implore others to be reconciled to God. Jesus will come back to restore our world, but the first thing he needs to do is he needs to remediate our world from the spores of evil and praise God, he will make all things new after that. He'll take care of the beast. He'll take care of the devil. And he will even take care of our corrupt hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your mercy and your grace. We don't deserve to have our names written in that book of life. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have our names written in that book of life. I pray for all here who are sitting on the fence about whether or not to trust Jesus and follow him, that they would make the decision today, that you would come and meet them in our worship service, that they would put their faith in you. And I pray that the rest of us here who have put our faith in you already would be encouraged by your overabundant mercy and grace toward us who are sinners that we would not think of ourselves as better than anybody else, but that we would be moved and motivated to share the good news of Jesus with others. Would you do that in and through our church here? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.